0: All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS. your Hey, What If Philip K. Dick Wrote Feminist Magical Realism Speculative Fiction Book Club Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I am back a little early this month with another bonus episode. This time, it is about the novel Unquenchable Fire by Rachel Pollack. This is a book that was originally published in 1988. This bonus episode was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters, and I am doubly grateful for it. I am grateful for the support, and I'm also really grateful for the opportunity to read this really wonderful book by a writer I somehow completely missed, even though she was active in my prime bookshop browsing years. Before we get into this episode, I want to say that I'm just in general blown away by the success of the the support for, really, I should say, this show for ATAS. It already, as I'm recording this, has, has not even been on the air for a year, and it is already our second most listened to show at the network, which I was completely not expecting. It also is the show that now has received at least the second most and possibly actually the most uh, of these uh, these commission episodes as well. I was completely not expecting any of that. I'm really grateful for it, but it does mean that I'm going to feel real stupid in, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, something like that, when an episode that I recorded in 2019 uh, is aired. And I say something like, you've probably heard me mention Patreon once or twice. Here's the deal about that, Uh, because already, I think at this point, a quarter of our episodes and possibly it's going to end up being a third of our episodes have been these commissioned episodes. Uh, So you've been hearing me say it a lot more. And I've got five more of these commissioned episodes that uh, I'm getting to work on right now, including some some Isaac Asimov and so on. All of that enthusiasm, all of that support for the show has just been uh, been really remarkable. And I wanted to say an extra thanks to to all of you here at the top of this show. But all right, let's uh, let's talk about Rachel Pollock. So, uh, as I said, I somehow just had never heard of Rachel Pollock, not at all, even though she did some work with Neil Gaiman. She even wrote for Vertigo Comics for a while. She was winning loads of awards in the 80s and the 90s, but I'm glad to know her work now, and I am really excited to talk about this book. So let, let's do it. Let's uh, let's get into Unquenchable Fire. So this is going to be a fun challenge for me to, to talk about this book. It's our first stab at magical realism, which by its very nature, I think can be difficult to pin down and describe as kind of its whole MO, right? So I'm going to start by saying that Unquenchable Fire feels like the book that Philip K. Dick would have written if Philip K. Dick had written feminist magical realism. And now that I have said that out loud, it sounds a lot like a, a tongue twister. So uh, I don't know. That'll be a fun game at parties, I guess. But uh, let's try to tackle this book by exploring the world first. Now, it is our world. It's the United States. It's I don't know, the late 1980s. Maybe it's a bit in the future from there, but it's a future envisioned in the 1980s. So there's been no digital revolution. But there has been a point of departure from our history. This is something that happened maybe, I guess, a, a generation or two ago. There are never any dates in this book, so it's all kind of nebulous. But at any rate, that point of departure was a revolution with a, a capital R. It's a proper noun. It was a global revolution in which the old world order was overthrown. And so now everyone is living in the new world, What's different now is that the secular and rationalistic world of the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment is gone, and it has been replaced by a world of magic and spirituality. This was a religious revolution against rationality. I'm going to take this up as my principal topic in the themes and motifs segment. So here, I'm just going to describe what this looks like. So... Pollock is envisioning what our world would be like if we had all the same material culture, right? All the same stuff. But our behaviors and our our beliefs weren't governed by capitalism and and scientism, but rather by a new age spirituality that is centered around ideas of community and tradition. Maybe we could think of this as as blending our material culture with the, the beliefs and behaviors of ancient polytheists, actually. But to be clear, it is not merely that Americans have adopted a new religion and that there have been some institutional changes that go with that or or as a result of that. This really is, this really is here a world of magic. It is a magical realism world. So there is genuinely bizarre stuff happening, uh, at least to our protagonist, who, who we will eventually meet, I promise. But for most people, though, this new world is not that much different from the old... Our story largely takes place in Poughkeepsie, New York, and in particular, in a new type of subdivision called a hive. Now, this feels very much like a standard suburban American neighborhood. Mostly it's white heterosexual couples with children or uh, such couples who are planning to have children. Uh, There's an entire scene here about lawn maintenance. Uh, It was quite harrowing, I will say. So, all of that is the same, really. But what is different is that the neighborhood is also a spiritual community within this new religion. And in fact, the neighborhood is broken down even further into smaller spiritual communities, maybe a dozen households, I guess, it's, you know, a block, basically. And these are the smallest spiritual communities in what seems to be a pyramidical hierarchy of spiritual communities. And in these really tiny ones, these dozen households or so, these have totems. And so our protagonist is in the raccoon community, which eh, sounds pretty good to me. There is a liturgical calendar and the raccoons have rituals that they have to perform together. They have regular meetings, though all of it, these these meetings, even the rituals, it all just feels a bit more like a homeowner's association than it does a genuinely spiritual community. I'm going to talk about that in the next segment also. Each year, a randomly selected adult in the community has to serve as what's called the touchstone. And this seems to mean serving as the spiritual focal point for the community. This requires living alone, or at least it requires having a dedicated space within the home for this purpose. It's not quite clear which, but the touchstone that we meet in this story is described as being out of the shadow of her husband for the first time ever, and she's shown as being very happy to live in a place that she has decorated herself for like the first time ever as an adult. There are high holidays as well, and these seem to fall into two categories. Uh, these are the commemorations of uh, the events and the people of, of the the revolution that generation ago, and then also festivals marking natural changes during the course of the year. So basically the same types of holidays that we have in in our world. It's just that they're about different, specific things. Uh, Although, of course, actually, right, the nature stuff is basically the same too. Now, these high holidays are presided over by the formal priesthood. Uh, These people are called tellers because, hey, they tell stories. The stories, of course, are the building blocks of the religion and also the communities for which that religion is the glue. And this is not any different than going to a religious service for a major holiday in our world and hearing the story of that holiday and what it means, except that in this case, there is a real religious magic at work. The stories the tellers tell are called pictures. Uh, all of these terms are, are proper nouns, by the way, I said that about revolution. but tellers and pictures, also all proper nouns. And listening to these pictures is not like listening to a normal story or, you know, like listening to me talk about a book. What they do is implant a really strong mental image and also a spiritual experience into the audience. And what that experience is changes based on the story told, but it also changes on the way that the teller tells it and and the teller's skill as well. And the book opens really with the plot hinging around the idea that Poughkeepsie is not a big enough community to have very good tellers, but they would love to get a really good teller to come preside over one of these holidays. Part of how this works is that the stories themselves are myths. They're not factually accurate at all but they are spiritually true and so they speak to us in a profound manner these stories these these myths of this new religion they're a really important part of the book Pollock actually gives us about two dozen examples over the the 400 pages of this book she splices them into the main narrative about our protagonist and so you just get these little vignettes some of these are are only a, a paragraph some of them run as much as 10 pages though so not even just vignettes just proper short stories. And I really, really, really liked these. It was a lot of fun to see how Pollock took stories that we are familiar with from ancient mythologies and then twisted them it reframed them so that they could serve as the foundation myths of this new culture that she's envisioning here in her imaginary, her speculative future. All right. That is the world that the story takes place in. I am not sure that I've done it any justice. In fact, I am certain that I have not, but hopefully that is a serviceable primer for those of you who are not reading along. But hey, this story does have characters. It does have a plot. So I should talk about them for a little bit too. So let's do that. Our protagonist is Jenny Masden. She's a woman in her late 20s, She's recently divorced. She's living a suburban life, though her husband was the reason she was there instead of back in New York City, where she grew up, and and also where she and her husband met. Jenny is prone to religious experiences, maybe magical experiences is what we should say. And these are what give the book its magical realism. I'm just going to give two examples, though this is not at all exhaustive of the, the, the magical realism stuff that happens to Jenny. But my favorite is her encounter with a precursor, which is the name given to a holy person in the past who had yearned for or maybe anticipated this new world of the revolution in, in, in some way. These people themselves possessed so much holiness that they, they sometimes appear in the world now, even though they lived centuries ago or, or millennia ago they don't really interact with anyone and, and maybe are something like a, a holographic recording on a loop. It's, it's hard to say how, how present, uh, how consciously present they, they really are. But in any case, Jenny and her husband encountered one of these on their, their honeymoon. And this is a really important moment in their backstory because Jenny was super into this experience, and her husband was super not into this experience. In fact, he resented her for it because even at this point, he he knows this is happening because of her. Uh, even if she is not actively doing anything, he knows that it's about her. The other event I want to bring up is that when Jenny is pregnant, she wants to have an abortion. Uh, we'll, we'll get to all of that in a moment. But when she goes to the clinic, she can't get into it because trees keep... Materializing in front of her to block her way, and soon there's an entire forest in in front of her. And this is not some hallucination; it is something that other people are experiencing with her. There's even a television news crew that that, that shows up to to cover the story, which is a great touch, right? Putting magical realism, uh, or putting magic, I should say, in a world that's got TV news, right? I guess that is what magical realism is. But it was a really great juxtaposition there. But this sort of thing does not happen to most people. Most people are just going through the motions of their faith. They're participating in this religion, really just as culture rather than as cosmology. And that there, that is the plot. That's Jenny Masden's story. Since the generation of the revolution has passed on, the faith of this new society has become entrenched as culture rather than as devotion and belief really in much the same way that in our society, the thing we do to honor our war dead is to have car sales, right? But Jenny is a conduit for the real religious magic of the world, the real religious magic that is behind the revolution. And she is going to be instrumental in restoring real faith in people. But this is not happening of her own accord. This is not something she wants to do. She just wants to be a married woman in the suburbs but she's been having these religious experiences her entire life. And after her husband leaves her, several months after he leaves her, she becomes immaculately pregnant on one of the high holidays. And it is this child who is going to usher in a new era of faith for a people who have largely lost it. And this is what the plot is concerned with. It's, it's Jenny's pregnancy, her shock, her, her denial, her confusion, rejection, her worry that she is evil and that the baby is going to be evil. It's about her attempt to get her husband back and her encounters with awful neighbors. It's even about her life at work. And so this is really the realism part of this magical realism story. We're just seeing her daily life. We're getting the story of a a, a woman who is pregnant, alone in a community that doesn't welcome her, right? This could be uh, literary fiction, right? A lot of literary fiction about exactly this sort of thing. But what Rachel Pollock has done is put a lot of religious magic into the story as well. And so the the story concludes with a coda about this child. Uh, The child grows up in New York City with Jenny and and also with Jenny's mother. They're all living together. The the child, uh, who is a a daughter named Valerie, by the way, uh, she is going to be a teller, right? One of these uh, priests, And the story ends with her first telling, and we are left with the idea that that telling was a super mystical experience for anyone who heard it, Uh, so we're really left with the idea that Jenny has given birth to a child who is going to restore people's faith through her own act of preaching. But we don't get that story. That story is, I don't know, maybe it's for another book. Actually, I'm certain that it is not, right? And so in some sense, what we're getting here is a nativity story about the birth of Jesus Christ, just as as our example here, except that it's really about his mother, Mary, and ends with his birth, or actually maybe more accurate to say, ends with his first preaching when he's 12, Now, as I said already, the the plot really is the least consequential and also really the least interesting part of the book. So that's all I'm actually going to say about it. And I'm going to move us into our themes and motifs segment where I want to talk about the magical realism and the suburban setting of this story. Let's start with the magic of this world. What Pollock is doing in this world is imagining what late 20th century America would be like if the rationalism that grew out of the scientific revolution and the enlightenment in early modernity were reversed, were overthrown, re- replaced with a return to a world in which magic and mysticism are regarded as real forces, uh, also as, as a world in which social life is shaped more by religious practices than by civic institutions. So that's a lot there, that that thesis statement that I have about what is going on in this book. So I want to really just begin by unpacking all those terms there and exploring the story of how our world transformed, how our world actually turned into the world that it is now. And I do hope that you'll forgive me if this gets a bit rambly and self-indulgent here. I'm recording this in very early January of 2021, which means that at the same time that I was taking notes on this episode and I'm recording this here, I am also getting ready to teach a survey course on modern Western civilization. It's a course I have not taught before, and so I am working through how to do some of this in the classroom. It's going to be a virtual classroom, of course, uh, but I'm working through that while I'm also reading this book and thinking about it and talking to you about it, Uh, so I'm going to work through that here on the air. And I'm probably going to mention a few books as I go, but the the two books that I've been thinking about the most for this that are on the desk right next to me right now are Religion and the Decline of Magic by Keith Thomas. Uh, This is a book that looks at changing religious practices and uh, changing religious beliefs in England in the 16th and 17th centuries. The other book is called Radical Enlightenment. Uh, It's by Jonathan Israel. Both of these books are really awesome, though they are also highly contentious. I mean, all of this is highly contentious, right? Because that is what scholars do for a living. We argue with each other. So that's going to be the driving force. Those two books are going to be the driving force behind the little proceed that I'm going to ramble out at you here. So let me just start by saying that all of us in the world today, every single one of us are rational people. What I mean by that is that we believe that knowledge of the world and and knowledge of the the universe and all that encompasses, uh, that knowledge can be obtained through observation and experimentation. And that through that method, we can discern the rules by which everything works. Now, we tend to think of this in terms of the sciences, but we all actually do this every day whenever we are faced with new information or some kind of new problem, right? That could be figuring out the best temperature to cook a pizza at in your individual oven. Serious problem, right? Or it could be the best way to make your perfect cup of coffee or, or fixing something on your car or fixing something in your home, right? Even the most devoutly religious of us, no matter which religion that is believe that observation and experimentation works and that it is the most efficacious way to figure something out. It's the best way to solve a problem. Even those of us who believe in divine revelation, even those of us who believe in miracles, uh, the intercession of holy figures, right? Whether those are, are gods or saints or prophets or spirits, even those of us who believe in all of those things, actively believe in those things, don't do so exclusively or even Predominantly, right? And all of this is a major cultural transformation of early modernity. Uh, and early modernity, by the way, is the, the period from roughly 1400 to roughly 1800. Uh, you know, I tend to mark it from the Black Death or, you know, the generation born after the Black Death, something like that, uh, really up until the sort of real first phase of the Industrial Revolution. And during this period, during early modernity, there are three key movements in Western European culture that give birth to this rational worldview that we all subscribe to. And the first of these is the the Protestant Reformation, and then also the Catholic Reformation that responded to it. And here, what we get out of this is an increased emphasis on individual engagement with holy texts right engagement with holy texts without the mediation of specialists specialists whose knowledge existed as a, a separate secret tradition as a, a mystery. Along with this came an emphasis on literacy which I think we all agree is pretty significant for the advent of rationalism and also just quality of life right We're, we're all here to talk about books, aren't we? And also wrapped up in this was the the decline in magic and this is really where I'm using that Keith Thomas book. Magic was a huge part of both Christianity and Judaism, and and of course, also various paganisms in medieval Europe. Some of us might bristle a little bit at that idea or at the the use of the term magic there. And, and, And that's because American evangelicalism has... A history of hostility to magic, and that hostility is itself rooted in the Reformation. Uh, but if you are like me, you know, if you are around my age, you've probably got a similar experience, which is that you ran into this uh, in, in terms of Dungeons and Dragons, right? The, the satanic panic, the crusade against Dungeons and Dragons in the the nineteen eighties. But in the Middle Ages, Christians and Jews believed in mystical and numinous powers. They believed that those powers could be harnessed through a series of specialized practices. Uh, Sometimes these were undertaken on your own, but more often they were done by a specialist who usually was a cleric of some sort, uh, which is to say that these magical practices and beliefs overlapped with religious practices and beliefs and were not separate from them. and, And the religion and the magic were not hostile to each other. They were all part of a coherent, single worldview. Now, various figures during the Reformation period pointed out that none of that is sanctioned in the holy texts, and these people argued for the abandonment of such practices, and gradually those views won out, which is why they aren't really in our religious practice anymore today. In fact, this decline in magic as a practice is a component of the witch-hunting craze of the 17th century, which is something my students always think of as being medieval, but in fact is a feature of modernity. And it's a feature of early modernity because it is one aspect of this major cultural transformation, this shift from magic to reason. But all right, that's all I'm going to say about the Reformation period. That was all highly simplified, by the way. And as I said, every part of everything that I have said so far in the themes and motifs segment is contested by at least one important scholar. The second stepping stone on this path to an entrenched rational worldview is the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries. This is the period that saw the rise of natural philosophers, people who were working to understand the world around them through observation and experimentation. Uh, These are people who include famous names we all know, right? Nicholas Copernicus, Johannes Kepler, Isaac Newton, Paracelsus, right? A lot of famous names. The idea that these dudes were scientists, scientists as we would understand that term today is not true of course right and there's been a lot of pushback about whether the scientific revolution was in fact scientific or revolutionary most historians today agree that it was it was definitely neither uh, that these dudes were not guided by uh, some kind of standard scientific method uh, most of them still had a ton of mystical and numinous beliefs that we would definitely classify as irrational and also that what they were up to which was a lot of awesome work right let's let's not minimize that but what they were up to had virtually no impact on anyone outside of elite circles but yet still everyone does agree that these dudes and their their work in particular served as an important stepping stone on this path so finally we we have the enlightenment of the 18th century this is the final movement in this journey like the other two stepping stones that i've talked about the the reformation and the scientific revolution there is a lot of debate about the the scope, uh, about the shape, about the impact of the Enlightenment. But I think it is fair to say that the 18th century saw the scales uh, you know, tip in favor uh, of an entrenched, rational worldview that is based on observation, experimentation, reasoning, also skepticism— On top of this, this was a period in which these attitudes, uh, worldview, maybe is really the word I should be using rather than attitudes, but it's the period where this worldview reached a broader public. And this happens because there's a growing commercial class in the cities that has greater access to writing. It's more literate for lots of reasons. Uh, But also this is happening because an interest in education in things like philosophy, science, literature, art, uh, that interest, that education, that became a status symbol in the 18th century. And that made it a fundamental part of urban and and elite culture in Western Europe, and, and also its colonial outposts in the Americas as well. And so that's the world we've all grown up in, in in, in a nutshell, right? It's it's a world where if someone wants us to believe their claim, they have to prove it to us with evidence that's going to stand up to our skeptical scrutiny and, and also has to be subject to experimental duplication. This is a world where we don't believe that magic or miracles are the most likely explanation for something, e- even something that that strikes us as mysterious, right? Even those of us who believe in magic and miracles don't go to that as our, our default uh, answer for why something happens. Now, I know that the audience for the show skews highly educated, so this example is going to work less than than it does for my my students, right? But how many of us really actually know, for example, like how our cell phones work? Uh, Almost none of us could manufacture, could make a cell phone, or even given the actual uh, manufactured components, put one together, program it, make it do any of the things it does. Yet none of us think it actually is magical or miraculous. We know that even though we don't actually understand the process by which it works, we know that there is a rational process be, by which it works, and that someone out there does know about it. Right now, my my students always believe that this world, the creation of this worldview that we all have, that this is a good development. Right, it's a, a mark of progress, and that it is here to stay because, of course, things are always getting better every decade. None of that is true, of course, right? As as anyone who's looked at a real wages chart of the last 50 years knows, things are not always getting better every decade. But this belief in the march of progress is itself a symptom of the enlightenment. And and this is where we can get back to the text. We can get back to talking about Rachel Pollack and what she's up to here in this book because she's imagining a world in which there is a radical revolt against rationality, against secularism. It's a revolution that brings back not just a belief in magic and miracles, but that actually brings back magic and miracles, real magic, real miracles. And maybe another way of putting that is just to say that Pollock is imagining a world that has undone the culture of the Enlightenment, the culture of the scientific revolution, even while this world retains the material lifestyle of high modernity, right? Cars and our houses, all of our, our types of gadgets and so on. But let's actually look at some text. For this, uh, there's a great, really great section in the second act of this story: when we encounter, when we meet the counterculture as it exists in this speculative world, uh, these are people who are still holding on to the beliefs of the old world uh, people Jenny thinks of as seculars or, or, or sex, SCS. Uh, I'm going to read about a full page of text here because it is just too wonderful to edit, but I will have some comments on the passage on the, the other side. What was it like being a sec? What was it like in the old world? How could people ignore the forces that make everything happen? God makes the world go round. That wasn't just a song. It was true. It was just common sense. She quoted out loud Adrian Birth of Beauty's seventh proposition Gravity is a story told by the sun. How did they think their lawns grew? By accident? How did they think the atoms in a molecule held together? By written contract? The funny thing was, they did believe in some kind of God or other, or at least some of them did. Only, she couldn't figure out what they thought their gods did. How did God pass the time with no work to do? Early retirement? What did they do in their church thingies? They prayed. Jenny didn't know what they meant by that. What would they have done if God had answered them? A message smack in the eyes from the living world. She laughed. Send them running right out of their churches and under the beds. But suppose God was waiting there too. Maybe lying asleep like an old dog that everyone's forgotten about. And suddenly growls awake. And what did they do without stories? God was made out of stories. Everyone knew that. Their children told stories. There were no tellers and no recitals, but the children told stories to each other. That's why children began their evolution. All right. I love this passage. It shows us so much of what Pollock is up to here, right? Totally gone from Jenny's framework, from her, her worldview, is any notion of chemistry or physics or biology. It's just not there. It's not even there as an alternative, something that she knows about but has discredited. She can only imagine the components of the universe, I mean, even the inanimate ones, as if they are active agents in the world in some way. The alternative to the idea that the universe is composed of and powered by stories is just some other way of using language, right? Legal contracts is what she thinks is the alternative explanation. There is also here in this passage an embedded criticism of our religious lives and beliefs, and, and Pollock is using this passage to criticize the lack of real belief, real devotion, real mysticism that characterizes religious practice in our secular and, and rational world. She's she's pointing out that the Reformation, the Scientific Revolution, the Enlightenment have taken the teeth out of Western religious practices that are, are now largely just empty rituals with no real numinous power. Uh, so in short, really, she, she's pointing out that in our world, religious practice and religious belief are a separate and, and cordoned off part of our life. They're not something that is central to it, e- even for those of us who really value it and really try to make it a part of our life. It doesn't infuse our jobs. Uh, in fact, we are required to keep it away from our workplaces, right? Uh, it's it's not something that we share with our neighbors and, 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 and so on, right? You, you, you can think of all of the ways where it is something that is separate from other parts of our life. Uh, our religious communities do not overlap with our work communities, not generally anyway, or, or our neighborhood communities, our school communities, and so on, right? It is separate. It's compartmentalized. And Pollock is not the only person to have been critical of the world that the Enlightenment made, and and particularly the way in which it altered religious life. G.K. Chesterton is a great example of this. And G.K. Chesterton is someone who is looming in the background of most of the shows on the network here. But Chesterton is a great example of someone who wanted to turn back the clock. But there is more going on in Unquenchable Fire. and, and, And here's where I want to turn to Pollock's critique of suburbia. She does show us a suburbia that is more closely knit, more intertwined than most of our neighborhood communities are, uh, at least in America in the early 21st century. I was a, a child when Pollock wrote this book, so I don't know. Maybe the world was more like this then. Uh, they are also a religious community. They've, they've got obligations. They've got regular meetings. Everyone knows everyone. A- everyone's been inside everyone's house. Everyone's made food for their neighbors and, and so on. And That does sound great. My wife and I could not even name the people who live in the houses that we see from like our own living room window. We've never been over to a neighbor's house for dinner. We've never had our neighbors over. It is something that we find totally regrettable. I mean, of course, right, the pandemic has kept us from doing anything about it. But I think even without the pandemic those encounters would have been really limited, right? It's something we might've done once. We had had the neighbors over, they had had us over as a sort of reciprocal thing. And then that would have been it. That would have been like the formality that we did so that then it would be okay to, you know, go complain to each other about trees and lawn care and fences and that sort of thing. So the way that Pollock shows us this community that is actually tightly knit, there's something nice about that. Except of course, right? It's also awful, (laughs) The people in Jenny's suburban neighborhood here, they're, they're not really any different than the people in Desperate Housewives or American Beauty or Winesburg, Ohio, for that matter. Pollock is telling us a story about the emptiness, about the rot of American suburban life. She's showing us that even in a world that believes in magic, eh, people are still miserable and hollow. They are uh, going through the motions and, and keeping up appearances Jenny's husband even divorces her because her relationship with the religion of this world is just too serious for him because magical things happen to her, right? Because they they don't go to church as a social obligation and then come home and live their lives, which is what he wants to do. And much of the story revolves around Jenny's absence from the celebration of an important high holiday and how much that irks the alpha female of the neighborhood, Even though the reason Jenny wasn't there is that she was having a profound religious experience and immaculately conceiving a child who is maybe going to save the world. None of that matters, though, because it looks bad that Jenny wasn't there. Uh, And there's a whole business about lawn care and uh, how Jenny is not keeping up with it and how traumatic that is for her neighbors and so on. And I really, really, really enjoyed this aspect of the book. Uh, Desperate Housewives plus Magical Realism is a premise that hooks me right from the start. Uh, Your mileage may vary on that, but it really grabbed me right away. Uh, And I think that's a a good note on which to transition to our strengths and weaknesses segment. And look, I loved everything about this book. I have no complaints, no gripes. There is not a single thing I want to highlight as a weakness. Uh, For one, Pollock's prose is marvelous. The The language is engrossing and enjoyable, uh, even aside from the meaning of it, aside from the world and the story and so on. But the world building is top-notch too. And, and, and this goes with the prose and it goes with the close perspective of seeing things largely through Jenny's eyes. But Pollock also builds this world through stories. Uh, she gives us the stories of the founders, the, the the stories of this revolution. She shows us some of the scriptures of this new world This is a great world-building technique, especially when they're as gorgeously written as these are. Many of these are are long enough to constitute short stories in themselves and are just totally well worth reading on their own, even without any connection to the wider story of the novel. Uh, It's possible, in fact, that she published some of them that way in magazines. I I, I don't know. I didn't look at the the copyright information uh, in the book, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. But I want to say that what I love most about these little stories is that Pollock models them on the religious stories from historical cultures in our own world. My favorite of them is a retelling of how Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades divided up the world after the revolution that brought them to power. Uh, In this case, it's a story about three sisters, and and the choices of domain are... uh, They're of much more immediate consequence than they are in any of the the Greek stories that we get. And and Pollock even brings in elements from other stories in her retelling here. Uh, The Persephone story is a big part of, of what she's doing here, for example. And the whole thing is just marvelously done. And so many of the stories are like this. The the book is worth reading just for those stories alone. So awesome. And I have no idea if Rachel Pollock has a a short story collection out there. But if she does, uh, that is something I would love to get into the rotation on Elder Sign as well, where we have we have done some magical realism there as well. But all right, I, I know that I'm running long on this episode. I maybe talked about the uh, about the Reformation and the Enlightenment a little longer than I, I, I meant to. Uh, thanks for being my guinea pig there. But uh, I'm going to end my review here. Uh, I do hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or drop by our subreddit and talk with me about the themes and motifs that I focused on, but especially on what I left out. And I, I did leave out a lot Uh, One thing, for example, one thing I'd be really interested in talking about uh, happens near the end of the book when Jenny is confronted with the idea that there are really only two types of experiences, ecstasy and suffering. Part of this idea is that love is a form of suffering, which is an idea that Jenny rejects here and this is a massive thematic element to the, the book, right? Types of love, what they do to us, what they do for us. I've totally left that out of my discussion here. So please come talk with me about that or, or, or you know, about anything else that I omitted or got wrong. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. Media. If you would like to commission a bonus episode, if there's a, a book you want me to cover here on this show, if there's a, a short story that you would like Brandon and I to discuss, uh, if you've got a favorite Star Trek episode or really any other TV that Valerie and I just uh, I just seem to keep overlooking that you would like to hear us talk about, let us know. We would love the opportunity to share in your love for a piece of speculative fiction. And hey, if you've just jumped onto this episode, it's the first time you've ever heard my voice. Check this out because you really like Rachel Pollack or magical realism more generally. Uh, I'd like to direct you to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast where, uh, yeah, does what it says on the box. It's uh, Brent Helt and I talking about Neil Gaiman a lot uh, and a lot of magical realism. So I hope you'll check that out if you're a fan of the the subgenre there. Uh, Next time on this show on ATOS, we're going to be reading Doomsday Book by Connie Willis, which is an absolute masterpiece. I'm so excited about that. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.